This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Before we start our show today, I want to share with you the official Hello Somebody theme song. Written, produced, and recorded by rap artist Famous. Hello Somebody. Coming, the pain is numbing. Try to shoot for the stars if you gonna aim for something. Embrace the love for your brother and sister. Unity's the missing brush. We need to puzzle this picture. Let's paint it up, frame it up for the world to see. Hang the hatred up. Enough is enough is enough. Making changes on us. In Turner, her voice is the truth. Her wise words inspire the youth to keep their eyes on the roof. It's the end. Never give up. Keep conquering goals. To the eye, intelligence, silver, wisdom is gold. Back to the end. Now is your time. Stay firm. Don't fold. To the A. All you need is the three bones. That's what Granny said. Now I'ma make sure these words from Granny spread. For all of here, just give her your ear. She can take you to the promised land. I swear, world peace is what they fear. From Queens to Cleveland, Ohio, we here. Famous. American economic advisor. He served as Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. He has written 17 other books. He's a founding editor of the American Prospect magazine, also founder of Inequality Media. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and co-creator of the award-winning docuseries, Inequality for All and Saving Capitalism. Baby, if y'all ain't watched those too, you need to go ahead and watch those. They will edify you and educate you at the same time. 
Both are now streaming on Netflix. I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Secretary Robert Reich. We began by talking about the massive greed and inequality in our world economy. I was looking at some stats. 92 million people uninsured or underinsured, 40 million people facing evictions, 31 million people lost their jobs and that $600 a month extra that they were getting, 29 million people are food insecure, and that's probably an under undercount, and 12 billionaires are worth $1 trillion. If there was ever a time for people to go back and revisit your documentary, this is indeed the time. Well, thank you for that. I, I just, it's hard to be level-headed and also outraged at the same time because uh, things have got so off track, so outrageous um, and so bizarre. I mean, we're in a pandemic and you'd expect that everybody would be sacrificing and everybody would be, uh, you know, taking their part and playing their part and doing what was necessary. But actually what we're finding is that the billionaires are getting even richer and drug prices are going up. There's more concentration of economic and political power. Uh, yet most people are really either going down or they're on in danger of going down. And as you said, evictions are going up. And in fact, we're going to see there's a big tidal wave of evictions going to start this month because uh, those $600 a week extra unemployment benefits uh, were terminated by the Republican uh, Senate. And by Trump. And so what we have, ironically, bizarrely, is a, is a national emergency, a double emergency, triple emergency. Yes. Uh, and yet we have more inequality and more greed than I think we even had before. And so the question I keep asking myself, and thank you for everything that you have been doing. You know, you're a hero and Bernie is, a, is one of my great heroes. But I, I have to tell you that I kind of look at this election, and I wonder if you do too, Senator, as, as a kind of, well, I don't know. I feel like we all have to get together, regardless of our particular viewpoints and our particular ideologies, uh, and even if we're not 100% uh, happy with everything that Biden and Harris represent, but we, we've got to form a kind of a anti-fascist popular front to make it possible for us to do anything afterwards. Uh, otherwise, if I'm afraid that if Trump gets another term, we don't get a democracy. I mean, our democracy is really gone. Yeah, Mr. Say, and that is so hard. I'm glad we're having this conversation because I go into moments of, especially for the people that I represent, that that progressive movement is young and it's raw and it's hungry and it's beautiful and it is hard charging. And that is what makes it so special because the progressive movement has that righteous indignation that is really needed in this moment. It was needed four years ago, you know, and thank God Senator Sanders lit the spark. And so the fire is still blazing. You know, he said, never lose your outrage. And thank God there's so many people who have not lost their outrage. So Mr. Secretary, how do we help to explain? Because this is really, really hard. When you look at the record of the Democratic Party, the neoliberal side of the Democratic Party, and then you juxtaposition that with fascism, I know there's really no juxtaposition. I, I'm sure that you and Dr. West are on the same page when Dr. West says difference between neo-fascism and neoliberalism, and neo the neo-fascist is the most dangerous 
right now in the short term. So it becomes hard to talk to people who have that righteous indignation to get them to see that if they do vote for the Biden-Harris ticket, that they are not, in fact, selling out their righteous indignation. I totally get it. And I, you know, in 2016, uh, as you know, I supported Bernie Sanders in the primary, even though I had been in the Clinton administration. Uh, I took a lot of heat from that. I said to myself, look, at uh, to me, Bernie Sanders represents my values uh, and I'm going to fight like mad for him. And then we did, when he lost the contest, I was angry at the DNC, as many of us were. But I said to myself, uh, look, uh, Donald Trump, is a clear and present danger. He gets in there, he's gonna make life worse for a lot of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, and I went around arguing and I, and I, well, I, I did the best I could, but I think that at that time, a lot of progressives who decided that they were gonna vote uh, for somebody other than Hillary Clinton or who didn't vote at all, they didn't know how bad Trump was really going to be. They didn't have four years under Trump. They didn't see the divisiveness, the anger, the hate. They didn't see the cuts in social programs. They didn't see the big tax breaks for the rich and for the wealthy. They didn't see the regulatory rollbacks on the environment and worker safety and everything else. They they actually didn't witness how bad Donald Trump would be and his attacks on democracy. Well, now they've seen it. All you need to do is just extrapolate, just draw a line from where we are now after four years of Trump, where we might be after four more years. And I haven't even mentioned the Supreme Court and the court system. And you can basically say goodbye to democracy. I mean, there is no possibility of progressives getting what we want and what we need and what we think the country needs and wants, what we know the country needs and wants, working people, poor people, no possibility of doing that. Uh, if we lose our democracy. And that's what Donald Trump is going to deliver to us if he gets a second term. So what I say to people is, look, the stakes are just too high now. Let's work out our differences in our democracy after Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are elected. But if we don't work out our differences after they are elected in our democracy, and we have Donald Trump, we're not gonna have our democracy. We're just not gonna have a democracy left to work out any differences. I'm going to, and this is the last thing I have to say, assuming that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are elected, I'm gonna push them as hard as I possibly can in the direction that I believe they must be pushed. And I think that they can be pushed. And I think that uh, they care and they care about the country. And if we get behind a progressive agenda of a sort that Bernie Sanders and you and others have been representing for years, we will prevail. But with another Trump administration, there's no chance. There is simply no chance of any progressive future at all. Two points on that, Mr. Secretary. You know, what? what, what is the importance of leverage or, in other words, what Brother Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. So there are a lot of people on the progressive side that really clearly do not think these two things are diametrically opposed in what you're saying. As a matter of fact, Roots Action is leading an effort along with some other progressive organizations to get people in the swing states to vote against Trump. So they're not trying to, you know, put flowers on this or spice it up. They're being very clear that they disagree with Vice President Biden. They see him very much as a neoliberal. But they also understand, and they understand, I won't say it's a but, and they understand 
as you and I both do, that Donald Trump is a clear and present danger. So unlike some of the fanfare that we see happening at the DNC convention, which is going to happen in the RNC too, because you're cheerleading to your team, to your crowd, they are pushing for voters, particularly in those swing states, to vote against Donald Trump. And for some people, that frame, that messaging is more appealing than to roll over and say that the Biden-Harris ticket is, in fact, the most progressive ever, or can be. So that's one. So that leverage there, I mean, what do you say to people who feel like they might lose their leverage? And then also the fact that Wall Street, there were headlines that Wall Street was very happy. I mean, can we get these candidates, if they win, to make Wall Street less happy? Yeah, well, let me take that first and then go back to the first question. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When I was in the Clinton administration, let me be completely candid and frank with you. I, I disagreed with a lot of what Bill Clinton was doing, and I really fought like hell against the Wall Streeters who were in that administration. And there was no secret about it. And I didn't make any secret about my fights. Uh, and those fights uh, did not generate the kind of outcomes always that I wanted. But having said that, let me just say this. Fascism is real, and Donald Trump is a neo-fascist. If that alone doesn't cause people to vote against him and come out in droves to vote against him, then I don't know what will. And if people are more comfortable thinking about that uh, than thinking about trying to push neoliberals to do the right thing, well, then fine. I just want to make sure that people don't do and make the mistake that so many of my friends made in allowing Donald Trump to take over America. I think that we eventually may have to have a third party. Mm -hmm. And I say that because uh, I see that the corporate and Wall Street elements of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are very powerful. Yes. Uh, and we need a people's party. Yeah, but I'm not going to take the risk of trying to encourage a people's party when we've got neo-fascism in the White House and neo-fascism emerging in the Senate Republicans who really don't have any principles at all. They're just a cult of Donald Trump. This is, this is what America faced every time we have had to deal with the ugliest forms of fascism and racism. It's what Europe had to face in the 1930s and ultimately led to World War II. It's an outcome that makes it impossible, literally impossible, for progressives and for those who believe in social justice to make any headway whatsoever. Uh, one final point. I talked to a few progressives. I, I remember this in 2016. I've had mm -hmm. some conversations like this again, where they say, okay, well, let's just have a revolution. Uh, now, it's easy to say, let's have a revolution. But you know something? Revolutions sometimes end really badly. A revolution is not something you invite because you want it. It's when there is no other alternative. And I say we still have an alternative. Most Americans want Medicare for all. I think we can get Medicare for all. Even though he said he wouldn't sign it if it crossed his desk, he being... Well, Joe, Joe Biden says he won't sign it. I've worked with politicians for years. If you get, make a parade that is a big enough parade, they will get in front of that parade. <laughs> yes, yeah, some of us will. I mean, it's, it's quite the peculiar <laughs> line of work. You make a good point. I, I talked to so many people who are so frustrated. I'm trying to deal with their frustration in a way that recognizes it and not necessarily dismisses it that we got to come and try to find some understanding and lean on people in a way that says, you know what, the points you are raising are right. The crime bill existed. You know, what Senator Harris did at a prosecutor by today's standards or attorney general is not where, of California, is not where we want to be today. You are right that people were in crisis before Mr. Trump took office. You are right that racism existed. Trump is a, really a manifestation of that and a, and a wicked and dangerous one as well. 
a lot of the progressives, especially in 2016, you may remember this, Mr. Secretary, were just dismissed out of hand and told, just get in line, just fall in line, just do it. With no um, recognition of the pain and the hurt that people were feeling to try to get them there. What, what advice do you give to people who are still feeling that kind of pain and hurt? Because there's a mirage being presented in some cases that all went to hell when Mr. Trump came to office and without just even a little recognition that people were hurting before that moment, he's making it worse and we cannot afford him for another four years because it will be untenable. I mean, if it's not already untenable now, it will certainly be untenable for another four years. Well, I think that you're right. We've got to respect and we've got to demand respect from uh, the rest of the Democratic Party and from independents and others uh, of, of the progressive viewpoint and the progressive fights of what has happened to people of color over the last, not just the last 10 or 20 or 40 or 80 years, but 300 years. We've got to make sure that there is an adequate consciousness raising about the fact that the Democratic Party not only abandoned the white working class, it abandoned the working class in America. You know, the Democrats really need their own revolution. Yes. And you and 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 Bernie Sanders and 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 I and others will continue to push for that revolution, that political revolution. But here's the thing. You know, you look at primaries like uh, what happened with Jamal Bowman and Mundare Jones and Cory Bush, or you look at upcoming races, Jesse Skaran, is it Skaran? I think it's Skaran and Alex Morrison. And, you know, there's so much vitality in the progressive portion of the Democratic Party. That's where the vitality is. That's where the youth is. That's where the future is. All the energy in the Democratic Party is coming out of young people and progressives and people of color and women. That's the Democratic Party. I take great, great solace. I, I think I take great encouragement out of that tidal wave. And nothing can stop that tidal wave. Nothing. Donald Trump, a second term of Donald Trump will stop it. That's the only thing that will stop it. And, and believe me, and you know this better than anybody, and I'm just going to say it because I want to say it and make sure that everybody who's, who's watching and hearing this understands, Donald Trump is the culmination. He's not the cause. He's the culmination of decades of failure of this country to respond to the needs of the poor and also working people, the failure of decades of this country since Ronald Reagan, since, since before Ronald Reagan, to make sure that we embraced the idea that this economy should and must work for everybody. You know, we've had 40 years of, of stagnant wages in this country. You know, why is the working class so frustrated and angry? Why is there so much anger in the system that Donald Trump tapped into? Because there has been a failure for 40 years of the system to respond to what really needs to occur, what needs to happen. Uh, the underlying controversy here is not between left and right, it's between democracy and oligarchy. And we have an oligarchy that has become more and more powerful in this country. That's the debate. That's the underlying conflict. That's what ultimately we have got to win. We've got to win democracy. We've got to win back democracy. I think it's beginning to happen, but with a second term of Donald Trump, it won't. That is the oligarchy 
wins, hands down. He is the Trojan horse for the oligarchy of America. He gave them everything they wanted, tax cuts, regulatory rollbacks, you name it. He's given it to them, and he's pretended to be a tribune of the people. Well, there's nothing, that's, that's a joke. I mean, he ran in 2016. I mean, he lied through his teeth, but he ran as a populist. And in states like mine, as you know, Ohio, it played very well. I mean, this man won 80 of the 88 counties in the great state of Ohio, a state that voted for President Obama twice. President Trump, he spoke the language, even though he knew good and well, he had no intentions. Not only did he not help the working class, he has made it worse for the working class of all ethnicities, but particularly the work, the white working class, and not all white working class people support him, but we know that he does have, as all politicians do, but he, he does have that faithful group that no matter what he says or does, they believe him no matter what. And he sold that so strongly in 2016 because we didn't have a countervailing force on the Democratic side in our nominee in 2016 to push back against that in a way that spoke to the pain. I mean, and you know, you speak to it all the time. People are really, really hurting. And when you have so many Americans in survival mode, it's really hard for them to parse out. They, they don't have the strength to parse out who's telling the truth and who's lying. Because if you were to talk to them, they've been catching hell the entire time. It has gotten worse, no doubt, but they have been catching hell. And so that they can easily be manipulated by a demagogue. And that's exactly what uh, Donald Trump did. You know, in 2015, just before the 2016 elections, when, when uh, the Republicans were still talking about Jeb Bush, I remember I was out in Ohio and I was out in Michigan and Wisconsin. I was doing research for a book I was writing and I was doing focus groups and in North Carolina, Missouri. And I would just ask random people in my focus groups. I said, well, who are you interested in? And they would say the same person. And again and again, I hear it from the same person. Well, we're interested in Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And when I first heard them say that, I'd say, what? How can you even mention those two people in the same breath? let alone, I mean, they're, they're opposite ends of the human species. Yes. No, what people said back to me is, no, these, these people are gonna shake things up. They are anti-establishment. Mm -hmm. I heard that too. Well, but actually the, the force that we are dealing with uh, is two kinds of populism. One is sort of authoritarian fascist populism. The other is small d democratic populism, progressive populism. And th those populist forces, you know, that's the real choice. I mean, over the last, over the next 10, 15 years, that's the real choice. But I, my fear is that uh, if Donald Trump gets a second term, it's basically fascist populism. It's, it's, it's what we saw in Europe in the 1930s. Everybody is hurt uh, except the captains of industry uh, and uh, the rest of the world is really, really injured for generations to come. So how do we how do we get the kind of small d democratic or progressive populism to become the dominant force in American politics? Well, we do exactly what we're doing. We fight fascism uh, and we build our party in a party. We do what's happening, basically the Democratic Party at the grassroots. Democratic Party is being taken over by progressive populists. 
Uh, and that's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's an important thing. We've got history on our side. We've got demographics on our side. Uh, we've got the energy on our side. Uh, and that will continue unless Donald Trump gets a second term and stops it. Dead in its tracks. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I hope you're right. I definitely hear some people saying, okay, we stop him and he must be stopped. No doubt. I've been saying he's a clear and present danger. You and I are on the same page with that. Even though I'm mad as hell uh, with the Democrats, the, the platform, not having Medicare for all, not legalizing marijuana, it's non-binding and not to be able to have the courage to put things like that in there, knowing we need leaders who have a vision to provide provision for the people. It is so important during this particular election cycle because of who we have in the White House. For me, it's always been important for people like you and other activists and intellectuals who are out there and, and people understand that this is not just about Mr. Trump. 
However, it is very much about him in this particular moment because we cannot afford to have him back there. But I don't necessarily think that the Democratic Party as a whole, the apparatus that is the DNC, not Democrats themselves, really are grasping on to the fact that there's so much more that they could be doing and saying to try to win people over. I mean, there's been a lot of boat shaming going on, Mr. Secretary, which we have to address that. But there are people who are concerned. So we do this this time. And if nothing changes two years from now and four years from now, then what? Are we going to be right back here again saying to people, this is the most important election of a lifetime and we got to we got to deal with the lesser of two evils yet again. Now, here's what I would suggest. I suggest that we do everything we can to get Donald Trump out of the right house. And that means electing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And then in the midterm election of 2022, we progressives take over the Democratic Party or do everything we can to take over the Democratic Party. And we send a signal to the non progressive Democratic Party, that is the corporate and Wall Street Democrats, that either they join up with us, Medicare for all, and end criminalization of marijuana, and free public higher education, and a Green New Deal, and end systemic racism, and everything else. Either they join with us or too bad. We have the votes. We have the energy. We have the movement. And that leads into 2024. And by that time, we've got enough momentum to actually elect not only a president, but also take over both houses of Congress with a progressive Democratic Party. We take over the Democratic Party from the inside. Now, if that's not possible, uh, the fallback, plan B, is a third party. But I worry that the history of America is third parties draw votes away from the party that is close, that's closest to them ideologically, and they reward the opposite party. So that's really a plan B, an emergency situation plan Break B. Break glass in case of emergency. Exactly. That's a great glass emergency plan B. Oh, my God. I mean, first of all, I got chills, and I'm just smiling ear to ear, just visualizing what the progressive movement can do in 2022, because we keep moving. We're, we're, we've never stopped. And that's what I love about the righteous indignation, even though some people can't take it, of the progressives. Wouldn't it be nice, though, if the regular Democratic Party cared as much about what you just laid out, which is this country needs one of the two parties. I say it all the time, even though people only hear what they want to hear. One of the two parties, it is necessary that one of these two parties actually stands up for the people. And the Democratic Party has the greatest opportunity to do so. Well, of course it does. Let's be really, really candid, frank, and realistic. Yeah. There is no party there. I mean, a party is what? What is a party? I don't know anymore. When I, you know, 50 years ago, when I first got involved in politics, there was a Democratic Party. It had grassroots. There were state parties. There were local parties. Uh, there were people, the very, very widespread involvement and, and deep roots. Uh, but Basically, both parties have evolved into fundraising machines. Okay, that's a cruel thing to say. You know, and operatives, political operatives, and political campaign uh, specialists, and and then you've got you know a, a relative handful of people who are professional, you know, semi-professional Democrats and semi-professional Republicans. But let's be clear. Let's be candid. 
uh, the real energy, the real life of the party, if we're talking about Democrats, is the progressives, young women, people of color, and a few old white guys like me. We are the life of the party. Yes, we are. There's nothing else there. And so we will continue to grow and we will continue to be more and more powerful and more and more independents will join us, more and more people who are even Republicans, even, even working class Republicans will see the light. They really will see the light. Some of them will come over and they will join up as well. This is not just the far left as we understand the far left. This is the future. This is the future of America. I totally agree with that. And even when I was on the campaign trail this last time, and I remember uh, visiting you know, farms with the senator, those farmers were, by and large, were mainly Republicans. But you could see a light go off in talking with Senator Sanders as he explained, you know, the issue they cared about the most was their health care. Yeah. They might have called it Medicare for all, but when you have a small family farm and if you have a spouse or a partner, one of you have to has to work a regular job in order for the family to have health care. And that takes away from your small business or the costs are so unaffordable. You just, you just can't do it. And so you're left with no health care. They really cared about that issue. And it was so eye-opening for me to watch this interaction with farmers talk about the dire straits, small family farmers and dire straits because of the way the system is set up. And the overwhelming majority, yes, there were some black farmers there, but the overwhelming majority of that audience at that time were white farmers pouring out their hearts. So, Mr. Secretary, you are really on to something that we can win over people when we talk about the issues that animate their lives, that matter to them and their children if they have them, future generations, speak to their hopes and their dreams. And a lot of the polling is showing that, not that we have to make every move based on polls, but 69% of voters support Medicare for all. Overwhelming majority of people support unions. They support the Green New Deal. I mean, all of the things that were considered extreme are really not extreme. They are not extreme. And in America, you know, you talk about farmers. I talk to farmers. I talk to uh, working class people who used to be in unions. Uh, I talk to small businesses. Guess what? The biggest problem all of them have is big corporations and big banks. They are getting squeezed. The farmers, they know the big consolidated food processors and the consolidated big seed and fertilizer companies are squeezing the small farmers. They want anti-monopoly. They want antitrust laws. You know, you talk to small businesses. Small businesses, they desperately need uh, universal health care, Medicare for all. They need it for their employees. They can't compete otherwise. And, and they're getting shafted by big corporations. Uh, they want antitrust. They want to make sure that the level, the playing field is level. Uh, they don't like the fact that big corporations and and very, very large banks are shaping policy in Washington against them. These are people who should be, could be, will be part of the next progressive, the coming progressive movement. I totally agree. And on the wealth inequality front, which you have spent so much of your career illuminating, how do we close this gap, especially the racial wealth gap, but there's a gap for just poor people of all walks of life. But the racial wealth gap is something that hits home for me personally, 
you know, the whole notion that my son or my grandson or my grandson's kids, 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 just because of the color of their skin may never be able to escape it. And even when you create a different pathway for them, they're still can be pulled back in to poverty. So there's, there's a, there's a racial dynamic to poverty, uh, definitely a class dynamic for sure, but there's also a racial dynamic to poverty, Mr. Secretary. How do we begin to deal with this in a way that pushes the system? Cause we're talking about systems here, not just, this is not just individuals, this is the whole system. Well, there are a lot of policies out there. I mean, I, I thought that a wealth tax made a lot of sense, and I think we should still push for a wealth tax. Uh, when we talk about systemic racism, you know, as well as I do, that systemic racism is in part being pushed by the oligarchy in this country to keep white and black folks separate so we don't team up, so we don't get together politically. Uh, so people really are suspicious of each other. This is not a new idea. This is not a new tactic. Uh, you know, the rich have been using racism for years as a way of splitting uh, working people and poor people and making sure that people don't come together in coalition. In fact, Reverend Barber and I were talking about this the other day because his, in fact, he is doing basically a revival of what Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to wanted done, you know, getting labor union people and white working class people together with, with black people and forming a coalition, a political coalition, because that's the only way we're going to shift power. This is all about power. Everything you and I have been talking about is about power. Uh, what's happened in this country uh, for the past 40 years as wages stagnate is that more and more of the benefits of the economy have gone to the top. And as you get more and more benefits at the top, more and more wealth at the top, that translates into more political power at the top. As the great jurist Louis Brandeis, Supreme Court jurist, said in the 1920s, he said, we have a choice in this country. We can either have great wealth in the hands of a few, or we can have a democracy. But we can't have both. Come on. He was saying that, you know, in the, in the last years of the Gilded Age, the first Gilded Age, and we're now in the second Gilded Age. Yes, we are. So Reverend Barber, the Poor People's Movement, Poor People's Campaign, definitely the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his contemporaries before he was assassinated. The Repairs of the Breach is the other organization that Reverend Barber has. And I was looking at their agenda, and they have eight major points, democracy and voting rights. So you're in my head, Mr. Secretary, poverty and economic justice, workers' rights, education, health care, environmental justice, LGBTQ plus rights, and dealing with the military-industrial complex. That is the agenda, and that agenda, they call it a moral agenda that is constitutionally consistent and economically sound. What say you, Mr. Secretary, on that agenda right there? Well, I, not only do I support it, but I think it's, it's correct to call it a moral agenda, because it's fundamentally, this is all about morals. Economics and politics, we can speak about all we want, but underlying it is what is a good society? That's a moral question. I mean, Adam Smith, you know, the, the progenitor of, of economics, so-called, in the 18th century, he didn't call himself an economist. He didn't call himself a political economist. He called himself a moral philosopher. And he was most proud, uh, not of his book uh, about the work of uh, nations, the wealth of nations. He was most proud of his book uh, about the concept of morality, the moral connections that exist between people that make it possible for society uh, to advance itself. 
Uh, and the notion of advancement in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and certainly 21st century must be about social justice. I mean, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. understood that. Uh, he understood that when he drew upon our founding documents, he saw in it, and on religion, he saw in it the doctrine, the fundamental doctrine, a moral doctrine of social justice, uh, that we as a society cannot move forward unless we recognize and respect the dignity and humanity in every one of us. And unless we organize our society around that dignity and that humanity in every single one of us. Well, again, th th this should not be a left issue or a right issue. This should be an American issue. This should be something that everybody, everybody can get behind. Amen to that. I mean, I'm right with you. Amen. And you got to know when to say amen. And on that, I'm saying <laughs> it's, it's about shifting the power and having a moral agenda. It is my sincere hope, as I know it is yours. And it is a work that I plan to continue to do no matter what, is to continue to push people to be able to see that that is absolutely possible if we unite. What did we say? Multicultural, multi-generational, multi-gendered movement. And the progressive are the life of the party. I'm loving that, Mr. Say. We are the life. We are the we life are, of the party. Life party. I'll tell you that. Senator Turner, I just want to thank you for everything that you have done. I mean, you are still young and you have a fabulous future in front of you, but you've already accomplished a huge amount. And I am indebted to you. Oh, well, I'm indebted to you, Mr. Secretary. I've admired you from afar for a very, very long time and never thought in a million years that our paths would cross in this way. Please keep being the master teacher that you are and really taking complex subjects. And I love the animation and all that you do and the courage that you had even in the midst of an administration of standing up for what you believed in. It's hard, not everybody can do that. I, I say people are put here to do different things and I want you to know you did that and you are still doing that and so we are absolutely indebted to you. And I'm glad that you and I are on the same team. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Keep up the fight. We'll talk soon. I hope. Hello Somebody is a production of Large Media Network. Our logo and web design was created by Grayson Carl. Special thanks to other members of the Hello Somebody team. Tiffany Hale, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, Julia Griffin, Angelo Greco, and Anna Mesa. Now, if you would like to support our production, please become a member on patreon.com forward slash hello somebody. And finally, come join us for more conversation on my social media channels at Nina Turner. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.